the rise of commercial space and the search for aliens. You're listening to Are We There Yet? The radio show exploring space exploration. Hi, I'm Brendan Byrne. Over the last decade, there's been a change in how things get to space. Since the end of the space shuttle program in 2011, NASA has been looking to commercial companies to fill the void. We'll take a look at the, quote, paradigm shift in the business of space with The Verge's senior science reporter, Lauren Grush. Her recent piece for the online publication examines the commercial boom in the 2010s, led largely by Elon Musk's company, SpaceX. We'll talk about that growth and what's ahead for private space in the 2020s. Then, are we alone in the universe? Surely we're not, and statistics can prove it, but why haven't we uncovered any evidence of life outside our planet? A conversation about the Fermi Paradox with our panel of planetary science experts on this week's segment, I'd like to know. That's ahead on Are We There Yet? But first, let's take a look at the space stories making headlines. Boeing's Starliner failed to reach its intended orbit after launching on a test mission to the International Space Station. The Starliner capsule had a problem with its internal clock, causing it to fire its engines incorrectly. Because it used so much fuel before mission controllers could tell it to stop, Boeing had to scrap a trip to the station. Instead, the capsule spent two days in orbit testing out its systems before returning to Earth. NASA Administrator Jim Bridenstine said despite the failure, a lot went right on the mission, but it's too soon to say if it will affect future test missions that will launch astronauts to the station for NASA's commercial crew program. Meanwhile, SpaceX, which completed its uncrewed test mission back to the ISS in March, says it's completed the 10th test of its parachute system. This is a key step in getting its Crew Dragon capsule rated for humans. Both companies have found parachute design challenging, so this is a good sign for SpaceX in its quest to launch humans to the ISS in the 2020s. Stay up to date on the latest space news. Visit our website, wmfe.org space, and give me a follow on Twitter for the latest space news. I'm at SpaceBrendan. The 2010s were a big year for space, especially efforts by commercial companies to get a piece of the aerospace pie. The Verge's senior science reporter Lauren Grush wrote about the last decade of development in the commercial sector, calling it a, quote, paradigm shift in the business of space. Grush joins us to talk about the changes, and she begins the conversation explaining how she defines the decade. I would say it's very complicated and nuanced, at least when it comes to the commercial space flight industry. So I would say... This decade was really about the emergence of companies solely focused on spaceflight activities and that were attempting to corner more private markets than other spaceflight companies had done in the past. What do you think was behind that? What, what, what was motivating these companies? Well, I think, I mean, I think a lot has to be said about the emergence of SpaceX, right? So for SpaceX, the motivation is all Elon's interest in, you know, starting settlements on other planets, you know, having all these really ambitious plans. And so that kind of lit a fire under the company's butt to be profitable and to find, you know, as many ways of making money as possible. And so that really is kind of what has driven the desire to go after the NASA contracts, to go after the Defense Department contracts, to go after private market contracts, to, to send all these satellites into low Earth orbit to 
beam internet coverage down below. They're really trying to find as many ways as possible to use space to make money. You open your piece um, on TheVerge.com on May 25th, 2012. And that's an important date because this was the first time a commercial vehicle visits the International Space Station. How much right. of a paradigm shift was this? I think it was a pretty substantial one. And I think it's important to make that distinction between what is a commercial vehicle and what wasn't a commercial vehicle before. So we've always had commercial companies working on spaceflight. It's just the, the contracting method has changed. So originally, you know, cost plus contracts dominated everything. And the government would give large sums of money to all these contractors and they would tell them exactly what to make and exactly how to make it. And they would have all this oversight and the companies would get money, you know, they would get their own kind of award fees, but they'd also get all the money for the production. And then once they were done, the government would own that property. And that still is the case for many other big projects, but we have this new contracting method called fixed price where the companies have a lot more say in the design of the vehicle. They have to meet certain requirements, but at the end of the day, it's their vehicle, they're making it, and they own and operate it once it's complete. And I think that's a very important shift in the way that things are being done mm. in the spaceflight industry. Whether or not it's going to take over, I'm not so sure yet. And I think that's still playing out, especially with the commercial crew program. Mm -hmm. But it certainly is a, a very radical way of doing business that... Um, we haven't really seen in spaceflight. And I would say that this decade is one where we're actually seeing it take, seeing this contracting method take hold and seeing if it can be viable and if it is a good way of doing business and, and lowering the cost of doing business in space. Would it be fair to compare it to like NASA buying a service rather than a vehicle? Is that a better or an easier way to think about it? Yeah, absolutely. It's NASA as a customer, right? That's kind of the way that they... Uh, advertise it when they talk about it. And so it's a way of NASA helping to stimulate these companies, but not being in control or being left in control. I think that's up for debate, you know, with commercial crew, you know, NASA has been very involved in, in the uh, development process, but I think it's still, it's still a significant change, enough of a change, I think, um, to have made a difference in, in the way that we might do business going forward. You know, this is kind of important because, you know, at the start of the decade in 2011, there was the end of the space shuttle program and NASA needed a way to get stuff up to the space station. How did, how did the commercial companies fill that gap? And, and how did that kind of propel this, this, this movement through the, the 2010s? What was very clear was that, I mean, the space shuttle program was such a great program, but it was also very expensive. And so there was no way that NASA was going to move beyond the space shuttle program. I mean, without getting substantial budget increases, uh, without, you know, offloading what the shuttle was doing to uh, private companies and for much lower costs. And so I think with the car commercial cargo program that has proven out pretty well that, okay, we can do these routine flights to and from the International Space Station for much less just to get cargo to um, to the station. Now we're we're in the midst of you know figuring out if we can do the same thing with crew and keep the costs down, which um, we 
you know, it's a little up for debate right now. I believe SpaceX has been quoted at a much lower cost per seat than Boeing has from, you know, auditors. But mm-hmm. uh, in, in in either case, it's probably much less than the space shuttle was. And NASA needed some form of getting their astronauts to the space station for a lower cost or else there was just no way they were going to pursue bolder projects like going to the moon, for instance. Mm-hmm. You mentioned that, you know, this this was kind of SpaceX's decade. Um, when you think about the company at, at the start of the decade and then you think about, you know, just this month, um, you know, successful launches, they've kind of grown exponentially throughout the 2010s. Kind of talk about how that's been driving commercial spaceflight and, and people trying to, you know, kind of follow in their footsteps. Yeah, I would say... Writing a look back on the decade in commercial space would not be complete without talking about kind of the rise of SpaceX. They really have kind of paved the way for this new way of doing business, which I talked about, which is not just relying on government contracts. While they still are very uh, eager to get those contracts, they're not completely reliant on them or, or pursuing these cost plus contracts. They're pursuing all sorts of different types of markets. And so I think that model is what other companies are trying to emulate, right? So you've got Blue Origin, um, you've got uh, Virgin Orbit also trying to do some more things, Rocket Lab, you know, where they are trying to corner parts of the market outside of NASA and outside of the Defense Department. And I think that we're going to find out in the next decade whether or not that can be sustainable and uh, I think you're also seeing that with SpaceX, they're trying to think outside the box when it comes to other ways of getting money, especially with Starlink. I think that's I think it's very clear that they're trying to become a, a consumer business because that might be another avenue of getting a substantial amount of money. We'll see if that plays out. Uh, but yeah, so I think a lot of companies are trying to model themselves after SpaceX, maybe not pursuing the same type of contracts and and you know, payloads, but definitely try to do things in that way and make money and and be profitable by by focusing on spaceflight specifically and, you know, more private markets than before. What's ahead for the private space industry? I mean, what are you keeping your eyes on in the 2020s? I think the biggest thing is whether or not we'll actually see these um, space tourism ventures play out. Mm-hmm. This this decade was supposed to be the one for, for them, but um, as we know with spaceflight, things get pushed to the right all the time. And so um, while we did have some people with Virgin Galactic uh, fly to space, you know, on their suborbital space missions, uh, commercial spaceflight or commercial missions did not happen this decade and not even blue origin was able to get people on its vehicle before the end of the year. Mm -hmm. So we'll see if those, uh, those adventures play out. I'm very eager to see if they're sustainable. Um, you know, Virgin Galactic took itself or it it became public and they released some very, um, ambitious numbers and predictions for the years ahead you know, citing somewhere like hundreds of flights per year, which I think is incredibly optimistic at this point. (laughs) Um, But we'll see, you know, that's something to to keep an eye on for sure. Mm -hmm. And then of course, human spaceflight with SpaceX and Boeing next year, fingers crossed, will hopefully be the year that people fly to the International Space Station with these companies. 
Uh, we'll see if that is a viable option, you know, for NASA moving forward. I think the big thing is to see, you know, whether or not there are markets beyond just launching to low Earth orbit. Mm-hmm. We've heard a lot of talk from a lot of companies that want to mine the moon, that want to, you know, start settlements on the moon, that want to build landers. You know, SpaceX is still, you know, they're they're taking a different path, I would say, to get to Mars, but Mars has always been the ultimate goal, you know? So I think we'll find out if these companies have the chops to pull off these really ambitious missions and whether or not they can sustain them and pay for them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Cause I think that's still an open question. Now the 2010s um, was an interesting decade for science as well. Um, and I know that your piece you wrote was on the commercial space industry um, in the decade, but I'm wondering if if there were any particular science missions that stuck out with you um, that were really exciting. I was caught up in Cassini, just like everyone else, or at least Cassini ending. Mm -hmm. And um, I thought that was a very bittersweet moment to follow for sure. Also, um, I really enjoyed InSight, the InSight lander on Mars, (laughs) Um, because I was there for every single part of that mission, I felt. Um, I followed the thing from Colorado to to California. I was there when it launched, even though I didn't see it. (laughs) And I was there for... Uh, it's landing at JPL as well. So I wasn't on Mars. I was in California. But, and, you, um, and, and you didn't see it launch because that was from the, the, the famous Vandenberg fog, right? Yeah, yeah. It was, oh God, it was like three or four in the morning. You know, it was the absolute worst time. Uh, <laughs> and there was, there was so much fog and it was so foggy you could barely hear it. That's how, that's how wow. drowned out. So it was like you could hear like a little rumbling in the distance, and that was about it. <laughs> I think that's the one uh, thing that that folks don't understand is like how how emotionally connected everyone gets to these spacecraft, right? Not only the people that are working for them, but the the people that follow them on you know as they're reporting it out, right? Yeah, and just even I mean, even with every rocket launch that I watch, I'll never not get butterflies or. I'll never get the nerve, not get the nerves mm-hmm. there. It's always, it's always just like there, no part of you wants it to fail. You want it to, to succeed. So everything, every time you cover these, these missions, there's always some kind of emotional connection that you have to them because mm-hmm. you, you know, the human instinct, you want it to survive. You want it to do well. And what about the 2020s? What are you um, looking forward to in terms of, you know, science missions uh, taking shape? I'm really, well, I'm definitely very excited and nervous for commercial crew to get started. But also, um, I'm really looking forward to the new Mars rover that will be launching next year. And then also, I'm really going to be very invested in um, Europa Clipper mm-hmm. when, when that gets underway and seeing how that thing is going to get to Europa because that's still kind of an open question at the moment. <laughs> um, whether or not it's going to fly on the SLS or commercial vehicle, we'll, we'll find out, I guess. Um, but yeah, Europa Clipper, I'm really excited about. What about you? Anything in particular you're looking forward to? Well, I, I think in, in the same vein as you, I followed OSIRIS-REx from start to finish. So I'm, I'm very nervous about the, uh, the, the sampling and, uh, and the return. <laughs> so it, It's going to be cool, especially getting it back to Earth will be really neat. Yeah. I mean, is there, is there something that you, that's not on the horizon that you think we should be uh, studying or, or focusing our attention on in the 2020s? Oh man, I would love another Venus mission. I feel like that 
is a place I really want to know more about. And there was all these opportunities to go, or there were these missions that they were deciding on a a few years back and and ultimately they didn't win out. Mm -hmm. So I'd really love a Venus mission. Um, What else? I mean, do you see Neptune and Uranus haven't had a a visitor in a while? I think that would be really cool. Mm -hmm. But do you also, Lauren Grush, do you think that, you know, with this emergence of commercial space flight and the things that SpaceX is doing and lowering the cost that we'll see within the next 10 years, these missions are going to be a lot more attainable because you don't need a billion dollar rocket to send it where it needs to go. You can use something like Falcon Heavy or Starship or or whatever else comes into the sphere in the next 10 years. I mean, is that going to change the way we do science in space? I really hope so. I, I hope of all the things that come from this change and the more capitalist structure of spaceflight and lowering the cost, that science ultimately benefits. Because right now, you know, planetary scientists are kind of at the, the discretion of NASA and, and the government and, and how they can do things. And how amazing would it be? I remember when when SpaceX was talking about sending its, you know, Red Dragon vehicle to Mars, a lot of scientists were kind of very eager about what kind of payloads it could bring because mm-hmm. they were proposing landing, you know, higher amounts of payload than has ever been sent to Mars in one swoop before. So I think, I hope that SpaceX and these companies realize the opportunities that they could offer to scientists. And I really hope that, um, they they patch things up a bit more with the science community because I don't think they're very happy with them right now, given mm-hmm. the Starlink uh, the Starlink project and how those satellites might be you know messing up with the uh, the view of the night sky. So I would hope that SpaceX and you know the astronomy community realize that they're all in this together. And that they really could benefit from each other because I'm sure scientists would pay to get their instruments and, you know, their payloads on a SpaceX vehicle that could land on another, you know, another world. So let's let's hope. (laughs) Well, in 10 years, I'll have you back on to talk about uh, what happened in the 2020s. Uh, Hopefully you'll come on before then. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. We've been speaking with Lauren Grush. She's a senior science reporter at The Verge. Lauren Grush, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. See you in 2020. Still to come, are we alone in the universe? Probably not. So why haven't we found any evidence of aliens? Are We There Yet is back in a minute. You're listening to Are We There Yet? I'm Brendan Byrne. It's an age-old question. Are we alone in the universe? Surely we're not, and statistics can prove it, but why haven't we uncovered any evidence of life outside our planet? To help answer that question this week for our segment, I'd Like to Know, we're joined by University of Central Florida planetary scientists and hosts of the podcast Walk About the Galaxy, Addie Dove, Josh Caldwell, and Jim Cooney. Josh Caldwell begins the conversation answering my question, why haven't we found aliens yet? Oh, this is, <laughs> this is an intriguing question that we've been scratching our heads over for decades since it's a, this famous paradox posed by Enrico Fermi which legend has it on a stroll to the cafeteria with his colleagues. People are talking about extraterrestrials. He says, well, where are they? Mm-hmm. And Enrico Fermi, be, Fermi being the person that he is, everybody really gave that sort of offhand question a lot of attention. <laughs> because as it turns out, 
while space is very big and you might expect, well, there's extraterrestrials haven't come here because the stars are so far away, time is bigger than space is. And so if you had an advanced space-faring population, they could travel across the Milky Way galaxy in a fraction of the lifespan of the galaxy. It's 100,000 light years, go 1% of the speed of light and you're got it done in 10 million years and mm. the that's one one-thousandth the age of the galaxy. Easy, so yeah. piece of cake, right? Yeah. So that that suggests that if at any time a spacefaring civilization developed in our galaxy and was so inclined to travel to other planets, the galaxy would have been colonized. Every single habitable planet would have been colonized right. long ago. It's, and so this is so why haven't they? How do you know they haven't? Hmm. Well, we do know they haven't. Okay. Uh, <laughs> uh, because of the genetic connection between all life on Earth mm -hmm. uh, that were clearly tied to this planet. So it's a very interesting question, and then people pose lots of explanations. Maybe, maybe advanced life is very unusual. There's no particular evolutionary need to make something that's got spacefaring capabilities. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe they have the prime directive, like in Star Trek. Okay. Yeah, the funny thing about the Fermi <laughs> Paradox is that, like, every p proposed solution to why there aren't aliens is either sounds to me as like non-scientific or too science fiction-y. Like there's, right. there aren't any really great answers. There's to not it. a physics reason is in other words, right. what you're saying. Right. And, and there's just like, I don't know, the, the solutions that I have been gravitating to in, in recent years are the, the kind of more pessimistic, terrifying solutions. Like People, that we are well, alone, you know, kind of a thing that, right. that, 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 but statistically speaking, it's unlikely. I don't know that that's true. I mean, it depends on, you know, the the question with life is, it seems like life probably has arisen a zillion times. The question is, do we, does intelligent spacefaring life? Mm -hmm. So is there some kind of a barrier? In fact, there, there's the, a, the, a term for that, the great filter. Right. Is there something that, that when life arises, stops you from becoming a spacefaring civilization? And then if there is, is that behind us or ahead of us? Right. Mm -hmm. uh, because we clearly have gotten pretty far. We're close <laughs> to spacefaring civilization, but not quite there yet. So is it that going from like prokaryote to eukaryote or something like that, that's a biological thing where it's, it seemed a very unlikely thing to have happened to make life a little bit more complicated on Earth. Was that something that is was that... a freak thing that only happened like once in the galaxy and were that once? Mm -hmm. Or is that very common? And if that's very common and people get to like the stage we're at very commonly... Do we all destroy ourselves immediately right. once we reach this level of technology? And that's the kind of scary part. It was of it. interesting that you said that 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 intelligent life does not need to involve or evolve to They're, become right. spacefaring. Like that's an interesting take on things. That... Well, and life itself doesn't. You know, what the, evolution just wants to reproduce. Mm -hmm. And if you're doing great at reproduction without having a giant brain, uh, and being able to develop a technologically advanced civilization, there's not an evolutionary survival of the fittest pressure mm -hmm. to develop those extra capabilities. I mean, most things that do very well at evolution and reproducing a lot do not have giant brains, right? Right. <laughs> right. All right. of the microorganisms that, that live in our bodies. And it's quite, it's quite telling that intelligence only really arose on this planet in the last million or two years. And that's and debatable. Life has, <laughs> right. And life has been around for almost four billion years. Right. And so... Only in the last, you know, I mean, life for most of Earth's history has been very right. simple and unintelligent. Yeah, life on Earth is basically bacteria, as Addie was saying, that we're the odd tail end of the distribution of life. Um, and I'm I'm very optimistic about life elsewhere in the galaxy. Mm -hmm. Life technologically advanced mm -hmm. sort of civilization, Star Trek life. Mm -hmm. uh, 
I'm not as optimistic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, like in things like Star Trek, they usually have explanations for why civilizations don't know about it until they're ready, right? Mm-hmm. Because you don't want a medal or, or right, whatever. Right, right, right. Prime directive. Yes. Prime directive. We had uh, author and journalist Daniel Oberhaus on the program a few episodes ago, and he wrote a book about extraterrestrial languages. And one of the things that struck me about our conversation was that scientists at large don't think it's a good idea to reach out to these intelligent beings because we don't know what their motives are. Yeah. Is that what, the case for you What all language did you have that conversation in? <laughs> um, yeah, I, I heard that conversation, and I... I don't – I'm not worried about reaching out. And actually, this is another issue about the sort of Fermi paradox and why haven't we seen them. So maybe peop, maybe there are Klingons and Vulcans out there, but they're not really feeling like traveling around and colonizing. They're yeah. just what living within – What do we have within, to offer here? They're, well, they're just set up in their own solar system doing their thing and they're happy with that. And also, they probably aren't thinking, gee, let's transmit signals of our existence all mm-hmm. over the place. We're not doing that. Mm-hmm. So why should we expect others to do that? I we mean, did we it do like, that. We have that. We've done we, it a few times. We, yeah. But, and we're also like sending signals into space. Whispers from Earth, as yes. Carl Sagan put it. And so uh, we're, we're not exactly like broadcasting, here we are, here we are, here we are. And so maybe there are a bunch of others out there and they're also just not saying, here we are, here we are, and it's a bunch of little islands mm-hmm. of uh, civilizations out there. Mm-hmm. Should should we be doing more to broadcast that we're here? Well, probably not till we understand things a little bit better. I don't know. <laughs> I guess I, there's the pessimist. <laughs> I don't think there's a compelling reason to be doing it right now. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, you said, should we? Yeah. Uh, I don't think there's. I'm not worried about doing. It. I don't see a reason not to. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, but 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 if we're going to spend effort and time doing things like that, we should be listening first, maybe, and and broadcasting right. second. We have been doing more of the listening, right? Yeah, ha- and we have that we've we've generally been following, uh, you know, that general advice, and and we've been, we've had the SETI program, right, searching for intelligent life or signals from intelligent life for decades and decades now, since the I don't know late seventies or something yeah. like that. Mm-hmm. And then, but when you're listening, you're listening in specific directions, and you listen at specific frequencies, right? Right. Um, so, so the lack of success of SETI doesn't mean that there aren't they're not out there, but yeah. it's the lack of success of SETI is is adds to this Fermi paradox thing. We just haven't seen any evidence. Right. Maybe they're all transmitting on the same frequency as ninety point seven, and, and we're blocking, <laughs> we're the, blocking signal. the signal. My goodness, my gun. Yeah, how do you know that? Like, what? Like, you just have to listen to a broad spectrum of things and, yeah. and just look for little blips. You. There are certain frequencies that if you were transmitting would be natural for somebody to transmit at. And so you listen in those frequencies and then you sweep across them to correct for all the things that change frequencies like Doppler shifts and things like that. And there's programs that sort of outsource to citizen at home science, citizen projects like SETI at home that let your home computers Mm -hmm. process those signals. Fascinating. Well, the intelligent life that's in the studio with me is Jim Cooney, Josh Caldwell, and Addie Dove. Thank you all for being here. Thanks Our for pleasure. Us. That was Addie Dove, Josh Caldwell, and Jim Cooney, planetary scientists at the University of Central Florida and hosts of the podcast Walk About the Galaxy. Find it wherever you get this show or visit walkaboutthegalaxy.com. If you've got a question for our segment I'd like to know, send it in. Shoot me an email at arewetheryet at wmfe.org or find us on social media and drop your questions there. We're on both Facebook and Twitter. Just search for Are We There Yet Podcast. Are We There Yet? is a production of WMFE and WMFV. Editorial guidance this week from Matthew Petty. Our director of content is Steve Yasko. You can find more space news online at wmfe.org space. 
Never miss a show and get bonus content and interviews delivered straight to your phone or smart speaker. Subscribe to the Are We There Yet podcast on iTunes, NPR One, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Support for Are We There Yet comes from our listeners. Until next week, I'm Brendan Byrne. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.